Hello, and welcome to Southern Stories. I'm your host, Bobby Matthews. This is a podcast that focuses on my short fiction. However, for the second episode today, we're going to do something a little different. Today I'm going to share a creative nonfiction story with you. It was originally published on my own Medium blog as Second Line, the uh, Human Parts division at Medium picked the story up and published it with the title, When the Friend Who Saved Your Life Dies Too Soon. This story was written on August 5th, 2019, just a few weeks after a young man that I knew as a teenager passed away in New Orleans. This story is for him. And it's a way to thank and acknowledge him for what he did for me many years ago. So, without further ado, here's second line. Bourbon Street, on a Sunday afternoon, is about as quiet as the place gets. Hangovers are medicated and regrets expressed in the cold light of day. Planes leave filled with Yankees who tell tales about the wild jazz life. Buses depart with bitter riders, wondering where all the money went. Was it Harris Casino? Was it that third lap dance in the champagne room? Was it the sidewalk stands where the barkers poured shots from doubtful bottles of Patron? Don't get me wrong, the French Quarter is rarely still. It's chock full of tourists saloons, strippers, and revelers of all shapes and sizes. You can always find a drink or a fuck or a fix. On Bourbon Street, you'll find any sin to suit you. Feel the humidity slide over you like a second skin and watch the sweat droplets rise like water from a wounded lake. Feel the heat crush you as you walk the streets of the Crescent City, somewhere below sea level. And pray the levees don't break again. New Orleans has always been a party, a wild rager that spits in the face of the dangers of living under the threat of a rising gulf. You drink the hurricanes and the hand grenades and you watch the wind blow to crack its cheeks. Katrina came and Katrina went. The levees broke and the waters rushed in. Bodies, too many to count, lay in the wake of the murderous water and it took years for the Ninth Ward to return to something like normalcy. But the city lives on, and the party continues. On this particular afternoon, however, with a brass band playing and 50 of us, more or less, lined up behind them, it was quiet and somber. We walked behind the band. Only walked isn't the right word. Some of us shuffled, our heads down to hide our tears. Some of us strutted, Some of us marched, some of us danced in the pain of our loss and in our joy to still be alive. We waved ribbons and boas and handkerchiefs, twirled parasols in time to the music, and we moved down the gray street in our funereal procession, in our second line, and remembered Mike. They found him on a Monday morning after a long holiday weekend. Was it an overdose? Was it suicide? 
no one will say. They broke the door down and they found him dead. That's all I know, and all I'll ever need to know. I was in the water, somewhere off the shore of St. Andrews State Park, a little preserved spur of Panama City Beach, Florida. I was body surfing up one wave and waiting for the next when everything went wrong. The undertow caught my feet and the sand slipped away beneath me. I went horizontal in the water, the blue-green grip of the ocean dragging me toward the darker water beyond the sandbar. And I didn't have time to catch my breath. Instead, I did what any almost 16-year-old boy would do. I panicked. The adrenaline kicked in and I began to thrash. My upper body was strong. My shoulders and chest were thick with the kind of muscle some adolescent boys seemed to grow overnight. I fought my way to the surface, gulped in air, and salt water too when the next wave hit me. And then it dragged me under again. I can still feel that hard gray fist of salt water in my lungs and throat. The saline burned and I fought harder, finding a toe on the bottom and trying to push off, to get up, up and out of the water, to expel the brine from my chest. But the sand slipped away under my feet again, and I was sideways, floating in the green water. I fought as hard as I could, maybe five minutes, against the great pulling hand of the Gulf of Mexico. But I was exhausted and on the verge of giving up. I can remember very clearly thinking, this is it. I'm done. I can't. The water was very green. I remember it looked like stained glass. Light refracted and reflected until it showed something new and different when I opened my eyes and my eyes were open wide. I was going to die, not quite 16 years old, on a church retreat for spring break. And it was over. I could fight no more. I remember a curiously peaceful feeling. I was going to die, and it didn't matter. It was quiet under the waves. I was out of air and nothing mattered anymore. Then a hand caught me under the armpit and pulled me up toward where that great light struck the surface. When my face broke the surface of the waves, I hacked out a huge gout of brine, retched, and did it again. My body racked and convulsed as it worked to rid my system of the water I'd inhaled. During all of this, that grip on my arm never wavered. When I finally wiped the water away from my eyes, when I could see again, I looked over at my savior. It was Mike. He helped me to shore and stayed with me while I rested. He was two years younger than me and he'd saved my life. I never knew how to thank him properly. In New Orleans, the second line is a long and storied tradition that dates back to the time when it was still legal to own another human being. A black tradition that's been co-opted, like so many other things, by white people. It is, at its essence, a jazz funeral without a body. 
so we followed the brass band as it played. The songs, except for the dirge at the beginning, were upbeat. It was a celebration of life. I knew none of these people. The men were bearded, some of them haggard-looking, their facial hair shaggy, and their eyes rimmed with red. The women were all pretty. That last part didn't surprise me. Mike had always been a hit with the girls. He was a Boy Scout, and I mean that quite literally but he was also one with a wild side. We reconnected a few years back, Facebook of course, and I saw a lot of the little boy I remembered, though he had grown an outsized beard to match his outsized personality. He loved New Orleans and gave tours to old classmates and friends who stopped by in the city. Mike had become a fixture behind the scenes for various TV shows and movies. You can find his name in the credits of movies like The Legend of Bagger Vance. He worked on Super Bowls and TV series alike. At the time of his passing, he was working on a new show. You'd know the name if I said it. Filming for Hulu. His role behind the scenes? Key grip. And I still remember his grip on my arm that day in 1988 less than a month before I would turn 17. It was a birthday, like all the birthdays that would come after, that I never would have celebrated without Mike. I think of him, alone in his apartment, over the long weekend of the 4th of July, when he died, and I can't help but wonder, what happened? The kid I knew and the man I came to admire was so full of life, Where did it all go? I think of what he did for me, reaching out when no one else did, when no one else saw the danger I was in, when no one else could help. And I wonder. Mike Satterfield saved my life. I am here because of what he did for me. My children are here because of what he did. And when he was in trouble, I didn't know. I couldn't see it. I couldn't reach out. I owe him a debt I will never be able to repay. And now he's gone. 46 years old. The family held a memorial service in our hometown, and I went to that too. Unlike New Orleans, the sleepy little town of Enterprise, Alabama, isn't much. It's a vestigial organ attached to the thriving body of an army post. Those of us who have moved away look at Enterprise in ambivalent terms, I suppose. It was something to endure and then leave. If we still love it a little bit, it's only because we're out and away and free of it. I sat in the back row of the funeral home with my friend David, whom I hadn't seen in at least a couple of years. We said funny and touching things to each other, things I can't remember now. I was in shock at Mike's passing. I still am. There was no body, no sign of his ashes. Interment was to follow the funeral, but I couldn't bring myself to go. I figured if I didn't go, if I didn't see the end of the ceremony, 
then maybe Mike wouldn't really be dead. As I sat there, I could taste the salt water again, could feel the weight of it in my stomach and in my lungs. My nose clamped shut, and it was everything I could do to make myself breathe normally. Waves of sadness pinned me to my seat and wouldn't let me move. I thanked Mike probably a hundred times. Whenever his birthday would roll around, and thanks to Facebook I knew when it was, I made sure to thank him again, publicly. I have lived a life rich with experiences, if not money, and it wouldn't have been possible if Mike hadn't fished me out of the drink that day. When I tell the story of how Mike saved my life, people are often surprised. He never talked about it. I don't know why. I think this was a key difference between us, a reason we were never particularly close, even though we shared that one undeniable bond. I mean, I would have told everybody. Sometimes I feel okay, but sometimes late at night, the waves come back and knock me off my feet. They pin my heart to the floor of the gulf, white cap after white cap of grief and sorrow and anger and failure, washing over my soul until I feel like I've nearly drowned again. But then I think about that second line, the celebration of Mike's all-too-brief life, and I realize that I carry him with me still, that I march and strut and dance through this life to music only I can hear. I'll never be able to thank him enough, but I'll hug my boys a little tighter and tell them about the man who made my life, and by extension theirs, possible. This has been the second line. It was written by me and published originally on August 5th, 2019. It was written in memory of Mike Satterfield and I really do owe him a debt I'll never be able to repay. You can reach me on Twitter, at BamaWriter. You can email me at matthews.freelance at gmail.com, and that's Matthews with one T. And I hope this story touched you in the listening as much as it touched me in the writing and the reading of it. Thank you for listening. This has been Southern Stories, Second Line.